Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of Rebooting and I have a really special guest for you today. He is the host of my personal favourite YouTube channel and describes himself as an internet rocket scientist. I am of course talking about the one and only Scott Manley. Welcome Scott. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, glad to be here. I'm very glad to have you here. It's really awesome to have you on. And yeah, like I said, been a huge fan. What would your family say you did for a living? How would they describe what you do? I mean, yeah, I think internet rocket scientists is how they describe it. They're like, he he does something on the internet about rockets and space. Yeah, I started out playing games and then somehow I started teaching science and they both work together. It's great. It's entirely a hobby as well. So... Yeah, and you seem to have such a good grasp of what's going on and a really great way of communicating it as well. One of the ones that kind of really surprised me was your video on Chernobyl and how the Chernobyl explosion actually happened. And it's just really well explained. And I just sort of thought, I wonder how on earth he's figured all this out and managed to communicate it. It was really good. Yeah, well, that was mostly anger at how bad most documentaries were. And, <laughs> I, you know, I read all the reports. I was like, this... What what is this documentary saying? No, that's all wrong. And so I finally said, okay, we've got to teach a basic course in nuclear physics about you know, <laughs> non-poisoning and the neutron moderation and void coefficients. And we, you know, I, I always think it's, I have this sort of personal belief that if you start with simple steps, you can f- get people to follow all the way through. Right. Uh, and, and the important thing is to know how you're going from A to B to C to D, right? And some... Uh, a lot of academic videos assume that you know all that stuff before they start teaching. So mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that's sort of my personal idea. As so you'll find that I, I will frequently repeat common things or I'll at least include links off to, to commonly known things or whatever. But yeah, the nuclear physics, uh, I was all, I'm also sort of have a great interest in nuclear physics, mostly because, uh, you know, sci-fi has nuclear rockets and nuclear bombs. So you've got to know about that. Yes, definitely. So just a quick question before we get into talking about Apollo and the space shuttle and all the other awesome things we're going to talk about today. Have you ever, did you ever watch Expanse? The, the oh yes. Netflix series. All the way How through. How realistic is it on a scale of one to 10, would you say? It's more realistic than most sci-fi. Um, and I love the fact that they make this big point about having to fly, accelerate, and then flip around and slow down. Um, I actually did the math on the Epstein drive, the super high efficiency fusion drive, and it's sort of right at the absolute theoretical limit. It, it requires a very high fuel burn-up rate at a at a sort of combustion power level, which is ridiculous. But it's not <laughs> it's not breaking the laws of physics. It's just a lot, it's getting staying within the laws of physics to make sure that everything can move at the speed of plot. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, because I think in some ways, like the use of the nuclear reactors in the ships is more realistic in a sense, because that's probably the best way that we currently know scientifically of having spaceflight over a long period of time. Yeah, you need to you need to go nuclear because chemical gives you the thrust. Uh, chemical's great if you need a short amount, of, a lot of thrust over a short time. If you need that amount of thrust over a long time, uh, the ion thrusters need either a ridiculous power source or you need to go with something nuclear. And uh, nuclear can also be used as a power source, but um, then you have to deal with 
cooling issues. A lot of one of the things you don't see in the expanse is radiators. You know, thermal radiators to cool down the spacecraft, and mm-hmm. that's again sort of they're hand waving that away by saying all the heat's going out the back of the ship, which has some issues with entropy and things like that. But sure, in, in real life. A lot of spacecraft, if they go, say, to use nuclear propulsion, they're going to have lots of these big fins sticking out to keep everything cool because of the amount of waste heat they have to dump. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, So obviously it was the 50th anniversary, I think, of Apollo 14 recently. Um, And one of the things that I know a lot of my listeners uh, and viewers are from the cybersecurity industry. And one of the things that I find really interesting about the space sector is that historically, I mean, looking at, we'll look at NASA, but this applies obviously in a more broader context, is that their ability to make changes on the fly to problems that arise in incredibly difficult adverse situations with delays and all this stuff and I think that is just it's just engineering and programming just at a whole new level to to what we do here on earth right um and obviously the Apollo program has had a, a wealth of uh issues and complications which we obviously can't cover every single one um but there are a couple that you and I spoke about that are of interest that I was hoping you'd be able to sort of describe to our to our viewers so obviously we've got Apollo 14 but obviously also Apollo 11 which almost didn't land on the moon at one point right depends how you look at it but yeah I think you know talking about the cybersecurity angle Apollo was important because they had to develop entirely new computer designs that were small enough, compact enough, light enough that they could fly on a spacecraft where mass is critical. And they developed three computers for the Apollo, uh, for Apollo. They had the launch vehicle digital computer, which flew the entire rocket, the Saturn V. That was a massive thing built by IBM, triply redundant. Uh, It had like digital to analog had like analog computers for controlling the rocket quickly because the digital computer wasn't fast enough then mit went and built the apollo guidance computer which is probably the most famous one this was uh, uh, about 35 kilograms it was all built from um you know discrete gate logic uh, all wired up had core memory it was about as fast as a you know 1980 early 80s microcomputer and there was two of those one in the a command module that stayed in space and one on the lunar lander that landed. And then there was an e- another one which had was like a tiny 4K you know, wonder. It was the abort guidance computer. And that was never, that was supposed to be like if the Apollo guidance computer failed and they were in trouble, they could fly back to orbit with the abort guidance computer. And it was never used in that mode, but they did use it on Apollo 13 because it, they were running low on power and they needed to fly the spacecraft to adjust their trajectory. And so there's that scene in Apollo 13 where you know, they're looking out the window to see the Earth and try to keep it there, and they're trying to fly the rocket. Well, in that in real life, they had the abort guidance computer flying it there for them. So yeah, the Apollo guidance computer, though, is one of my favorite subjects because I'm such a nerd. Uh, <laughs> the great thing about the Apollo guidance computer is that it is so well documented and you can go and get complete emulated versions of it. Uh, so you can run whatever software you like. You can write your own code. There's actually someone wrote a Bitcoin miner for it for you know fun. I have a book. It's called like it's the Apollo guidance computer, which documents everything about it. 
So uh, on Apollo 11, first of all, uh, I guess that's that's the one, the first one, right? <laughs> and during that descent, you know, it was a completely new thing. And they started, it, it flies during the descent in something called program 63 and then program 64 which is basically doing the guidance to get to the surface and as they're doing this they start to get program alarms 1201 alarm 1202 alarm and you know the spacecraft is still flying but the crew is getting very worried because this is like a big alarm that comes up every 10 seconds or so and there's a story of the guy back at Mission Control in the back room and he's got a little crib sheet and he knows all the alarms and he basically says, okay, this is basically telling him the computer is overloaded, it's running more than it should and it's having to shut down and restart every 10 seconds or so. And he basically says, okay, we're okay with that as long as you're maintaining control, as long as it doesn't repeat itself continuously, right? So they can continue to fly. And so they did continue to fly that descent but you know the reason for this is that the apollo guidance computer was a real-time computer it had to run all these different processes in parallel and so you had an executive that when it got an interrupt it would launch the correct handler that would you know run its thing and then return control back to the main system and so you would have a bunch of different handlers running and underneath it all you would have the servicer the servicer mm-hmm. would be taking all the guidance data and figuring out how to actually fly the spacecraft and that would be a job that was kicked off every two seconds it would run complete and so the so just due to a sort of an ish well due to a uh, documentation error the radar the land is sort of the rendezvous radar when it was running if it was switched to a certain mode it could generate spurious signals and just due to pure luck it was generating like the maximum number of spurious signals so it kept waking the computer up saying hey look at this look at this look at this look at this and that took away they had about a 10 percent margin they took away almost all their computer margin so whenever they started to run something else like buzz would they would be flying it and they would want to run a program, say, to figure out how fast they're descending to get their delta H. So they punch that into the computer, it would come up, and then the computer would shut down with this alarm. And because that extra request to push them over the edge. So, yeah, this is often told as, well, the computer was doing the right thing, it was shutting down and restarting, because... The Apollo guidance computer followed a strategy that was unlike IBM. IBM had the launch vehicle guidance computer. It was triply redundant. It did everything three times and then picked the best two, right? Mm -hmm. The two that I agreed. But with the Apollo guidance computer, that was, they were in a much more mass constrained environment. So they had a single computer and when it, uh, if there was any error, it could just trigger a reset of the computer and that would clean up all its tasks and it would just restart like instantly keeping all its state in memory. So that's what happened. They had several restarts. Now it wasn't a complete reboot where they would wipe the memory. If that happened, they would have been in trouble. (laughs) Yeah. But, but yeah, I mean, this is one of the great, you know, computer moments in history. This, this, your descent and landing and Neil Armstrong sort of being as cool as possible, but you can still hear it in his voice. Like tells it, what about that alarm? (laughs) 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 So, so that was a, that was Apollo 11 and Apollo 12 had an even more 
dramatic <laughs> moment. During their launch, the, uh, their spacecraft, the entire mighty Saturn V, as it ascended towards the sky, it got hit by lightning twice. And the lightning just zapped all their power supplies in the command module. So the command module is the spacecraft that sits on top of the big rocket and it had fuel cells. And those saw big voltage spikes. So they shut down to protect the electronics. So suddenly they're Mm -hmm. flying without uh, all the power they need. They're running on batteries, but they're taking too much power. And they're freaking out because these crew, all they can see is their uh, artificial horizon is spinning around and they're getting complete nonsense out of the, the numbers. The rocket on, from the ground is still flying just fine because its computer is the IBM one and it's further down in the rocket. It right. handled the, it's not, it's powered via a completely different mechanism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're flying like this for like a minute or so. <laughs> you can imagine they're, they're sitting on 3000 tons of highly explosive propellant. <laughs> they don't know what way they're flying. It looks fine, but for all they know, they could be headed into the ground <laughs> from the instruments. Oh my God. So down in, down in mission control, there's a guy that he knows, he knows what it's about. And he, and he calls up is John Aaron. I think his name is he, uh, he basically says, guys, try SCE to Ox. And the thing about this is, this is a control they've never heard in any of the Sims. So this has to get relayed by Capcom, who's the astronaut. He said, reads it up and it's like, try SCE to Ox. They hear it, they're like, FCE? What? What's FCE? <laughs> oh my God. And like, they're, it's, 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 uh, it's really great to listen to this. But then Albine, I think he remembers, it's like, oh wait, it's over here. It's this obscure little switch and what it did was by switching from one mode to the other, it goes through like a, a zero position, which cut off the power and restarted their signal conditioning equipment. And suddenly they're starting to get good data and they're able to fly again. But yeah, they, they made that. And of course they made it all the way to the moon. After they reached orbit, they had to run through like a complete checklist of everything. They had to recalibrate their guidance. Uh, there's one thing that they couldn't actually check in orbit uh, and I'm not sure they even told the astronauts this, but they couldn't check that the parachutes would work after being hit by lightning. <laughs> so back, guys back in mission control weren't sure that when they made it back to Earth that their parachutes would open and they would all die. But they figured that since they were in space, they might as well let them have a trip to the moon first. <laughs> well, I guess at that point, you know, the outcome's going to be the same regardless of whether you land it now yeah. or you land it in however long. Right. So anyway, Apollo 14, that's the one we just had the 50th anniversary of. And this is my favorite one. If you're, uh, you've got an audience of InfoSec people, right? So I'm going to pitch this. This is the world's greatest tech support call ever, where they (laughs) had, they came up with a solution to a problem which required editing memory on a running system by, (laughs) so that it would do what it was supposed to, right? So, I mean, we've all had that. If I could just change the memory in production, that would solve our problem. We don't need to go through these programmers. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, the guidance computer, its program was, there was two types of memory on it. There's the read-only memory, which carried most of the program, and there's the the RAM, right? And the RAM was core, uh, core memory, where you have these little wires and they do little magnetic bubbles, and you can read out the state of the magnetic bubbles. And it's the great thing about it is it's non-volatile. So you, you shut the computer down and you bring it back up. 
it has the same memory. Mm-hmm. In fact, you know, funny story, there's a bunch of guys that restored an Apollo guidance computer. They figured out what was wrong with it. They had to, they actually had to bypass what one of the, <laughs> they actually found out the problem was that their core memory, one of the data lines was broken somewhere inside it. So what they did was they just rewired it. So the parity bit became the data bit and just set it so the parity was always correct. <laughs> But they they booted this thing up and they were able to read memory from the last time the computer had been run fifty years ago. Cool. Right. So so yeah, you're talking. You ever talk about uh you know cold boot or whatever and and bringing up a system yeah. to read its memory? Yeah. Make sure uh, you wipe your memory before uh, shutting down <laughs> core memory. Right. So anyway. That's an aside. The program was all written into core rope memory, and that is a series of wires and the way they would work is they would have to go through like a little magnetic loop or they could go around a magnetic loop and depending upon whether it went through or around you could read off uh, a bit one way or another so they would write this program out convert it to digital form and then it would get sent to a factory and there'd be women basically sewing this memory right they called it lol memory a little old lady memory which is (laughs) So yeah, uh, the code for this is literally <laughs> woven into the fabric of the computer itself. And so on Apollo 14, they get to orbit and they start seeing that their abort switch is randomly triggering, right? There's a problem with it. They tap the switch and it goes off and then it comes back on later. And the problem is that tell is a switch that tells the computer, you need to perform the GTFO maneuver. You need to abort, right? <laughs> and... <laughs> So they can't, they, they need to figure out a workaround for this and they can't rewrite the program. It's often said that they rewrote the program. That's not what they did. They looked down in the code. They got a guy called Don Ailes, who was one of the guys that wrote the programs. He was at MIT and a great pioneer in that regard. And he's there working through looking at the memory and he figures out, first of all, that there's a bit that is set called the let abort bit. So if you reset that, it won't trigger the abort. That's fine. So they can do that. The problem is then they realize that when they light the engine, they call a routine, a routine that lights the engine called burn, baby, burn. It's uh, it's going to reset that bit to on. So they have this problem because as soon as the engine starts up, they're going to be in this state where the abort will trigger again. So they think about it a little more and they say, but wait a second, the abort routine, the first thing it does when it's triggered is it checks to see if we're already aborting. So the solution in the end is they have to type in these numbers onto the program where it's literally, there's a command, pardon me, there's a command in the the control system that lets them set bits and bytes in memory. This is like 15-bit memory. They do it all in octal. I have a video about it in great detail. So they switch off that bit and then they change the program mode after they start, after they start the descent uh, routine, they switch the program mode register to say you're actually aborting. Now the program <laughs> that's running is landing program, but it looks to them like they're in the abort mode. And so when that's triggering, the the thing is saying, "Oh, I'm already aborting. I don't need to follow this." So and what so- would have happened if they'd have needed to abort? So at that point, yes, they would have to. 
either type in a bunch of numbers to reset the let abort bit, or oh or they would just use the abort guidance computer, the backup, right? So yeah. that was there as an option. But yeah, they ultimately made it to the surface of the moon. And, um, you know, many great things happened on that mission. Alan Shepard, of course, played golf on that mission. Yes, <laughs> he did. He was one of yeah. the original, he was the only one of the Mercury 7 to make it to the surface of the moon. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I remember reading about that. And then the space trees, you also had a video on yes. the seeds that I can't remember whether you said they were germinated. They they just before, took them in a or... trip around the moon and then yeah. they brought them back and they, they went all over America. And there's a couple in Berkeley that I visited. Trees that have gone around the moon. Yeah, it was, it was I think, probably my favourite Apollo mission, actually, Apollo 14. I thought it was... It's often it was lo- overlooked. Cool. They had yeah. a wheelbarrow as well, which I find is funny. Oh, sorry, it, yeah, they had a hand cart with actual yeah, rubber yeah, yeah. tires. And it was also <laughs> so important for NASA, wasn't it? Because Apollo 13 had happened. And whilst obviously, thankfully, everything was ultimately fine and people ca- they all came back safely, there was probably a bit of pressure on them to make this successful and, and work, right? Yeah, because... yeah they, this was demonstrating <laughs> that they hadn't lost their mojo. We've got to talk about Mars because obviously Mars is in the news at the moment. Um, missions to Mars. So the first question that I'm I sure lots of people are wondering is why do we have these gaps between Mars missions? Why are they all clumped together? It's because of launch windows. It's dynamically favorable to go when the planets are in the correct alignment. And if you play Kerbal Space Program, you'll know this. Get your launch window right and your fuel requirements <laughs> are much lower. And it, yeah. once you get outside of that one month launch window, it gets very, very high, very, very quickly. So uh, yeah. back when they launched a Spirit and Opportunity, they actually, because they couldn't launch them at the same time, because they were using the same rocket, t- a similar rocket type, the second one that went actually was a slightly bigger version of the same rocket, had bigger boosters so, because it needed to make up more speed. There are always critics, right, with the space industry that say it's a waste of money, that say that money could be better used on X, Y, Z. Yeah, well, let me tell you, all that money that we spend on space is spent here on Earth paying people to do things on Earth <laughs> yeah. so that they can spend their money on things on Earth, right? <laughs> it's it's a perfectly good way to stimulate an economy and give people jobs. Totally. And it kind of drums up support like sports do, and we don't say that's a waste of money. So Yes, it's true. I I feel that that's um, and I, I think one of the other questions that one of my uh, listeners really wanted me to ask you was realistically, what is the chance of humans actually being able to be on Mars? Well, is that likely? It's is a that- matter of time. It's it is. I mean, so Mars is the closest thing we have to Earth near us. Mm-hmm. Is right. It's it's nothing like it, but it's a planet that you could, in theory, walk around on in a spacesuit. Uh, it doesn't have. It's not like Venus, which will burn you and brawl <laughs> you and corrode you and suffocate you at the same time. The moon is a vacuum, but it's it's nice and close. But Mars, yeah, Mars is a fine place to learn about. And the thing is, Mars used to be wet like Earth, so we're really interested in wondering why a planet went from being a wet water world to being a dried out lifeless husk because guess what we're a planet that is a wet water world and we'd like it not to become a dry a lifeless husk <laughs> so who do you think is going to get to mars first who do you think's winning the race at the moment uh well i mean i think the u.s has a lot of a huge advantage on so many levels but uh i'm not sure 
they have the same level of political drive and support that, uh, say, China has. But I don't think China is really looking to go to Mars just yet. They're going to aim for the moon first, which... uh, Mm -hmm. You know, the moon, being able to go back to the moon is sort of a prerequisite for going to Mars, let's say. And being able to go there and stay for long periods, that's sort of the baseline that we're looking at. If space is ever going to become, well, I don't, I'm not sure it'll ever become truly affordable, but if it'll ever become sort of relatively affordable, I suppose, then it needs to be reusable. And that, I guess, was the premise of the space shuttle as well, wasn't it? Although it, it didn't work out like that. that it wasn't that reusable at all, was it? It would end, have been so. cheaper if they'd flown it more, but they didn't have enough people wanting to fly stuff on it. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think I, I read the cost was something, it was in the billions per launch, wasn't it? It was... Right, the first launch of the year would be $2 billion and everything else would be half a billion for that yes. year. Like It was just the cost of keeping the program running. But it can do stuff that nothing else can do. And yeah. right now there are capabilities a shuttle had that we do not have anymore in the US or are anywhere in the world. Like the ability yeah. to go up and pluck a satellite out and repair it. Like, I don't know how we're going to fix Hubble if we want to do it again. Yeah, it, it was it was an amazing solution to a very difficult problem. And it was sad in some respects that it got retired, but it also had its fair share of disasters it was sad that they never decided to proceed with a shuttle two that's what i would say and they never funded it in time yeah 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 it was it was a shame but anyway we've we've run out of time um thank you so much for coming on i really appreciate it i'm sure all my viewers will be ecstatic that you've come on and and talked about all these amazing things especially the amount of sort of hacking that actually goes on in space which is just phenomenal um where can people go to read what you're doing watch obviously your youtube channel yeah, I mean, watch my YouTube channel, Google Scott Manley and find the guy that's bald. That's the one. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what happens when you get to a certain level. You just say, just Google my name. It's easier. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. And he's just got tons and tons and tons of accessible videos that are on space or on all different scientific and stuff about v- video games. Things. I love video games. Video games as well. Yeah, I have to be honest, my uh, level of expertise at flying rockets is really quite terrible. Most of them explode on the launch pad, if I'm perfectly honest. I'd say well, you know, they just solve that. Ratio. Yeah. <laughs> we were all there once. <laughs> yeah. I'll get there. I'll get there. Don't let me near any sort of uh, control rooms for the moment anyway. But thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. And make sure you like this video and subscribe to avoid missing any other future guests. Thank you so much for watching. Goodbye. Fly safe. (laughs) 